They called for me. That is all I really know. They called for me and I went to them. I could not do otherwise. The will of the whole of humanity was a strong thing. It smashed through the ties of time and the chains of space and dragged me to hell. Why was I chosen? I still do not know, though they believed they had told me. Now it is done and I am here. I shall always be here. And if, as wise men tell me, time is cyclic, then I shall one day return to part of the cycle I knew as the 20th century. For, and it was no wish of mine, I am immortal. Hello and welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On today's show, Phil and I delve for the first time, for the show at least, into the character and worlds of Erikos. Now, pronunciation is always a factor when dealing with fantasy fiction, and as we've found, Moorcock's fiction in particular. Erikos has an umlaut over the final E. Never, in all the years of reading Moorcock back in my salad days, did it ever occur to me to look up what an umlauted E would sound like but there was no tinterweb back in those days. So, having now returned to the character, I've done the deed and checked it out, but I still can't quite get it, and it sounds weird with me saying it that way, so I'm sticking with Erikos. Erikos is a fascinating character. He's introduced in the 1970 novel The Eternal Champion, but even the date of initial publication doesn't quite marry up with Moorcock's already pretty muddled early Eternal Champion timeline, or narrative chronology, to the extent that it's even possible to plot that out or even sensible, for that matter. What this novel does do, though, is to clearly state that not only is there a thematic link between his sequences and key characters, but that this new character, Erikos, is a key link between them. The initial setup gives a big part of Mocock's fantasy game away within a few lines, but we'll get to that. Erikos, despite being a crucial character in a number of ways, also happens to be the least prolific of Mocock's big four fantasy characters. He was the subject of two novels and a graphic novel, as well as making a number of appearances in crossover events during Moorcock's second age, for want of a better expression. If the 1960s was Moorcock wildly creating idea after idea, and vivid characters, worlds and scenarios one after another, then his 70s output was a little bit more circumspect, and formed his first, but not only run, at applying some level of consistency to his creations, tying them together to a degree as part of his personal cosmology. This novel, The Eternal Champion, is probably the first stage of the imaginative process that would culminate five years later, for good or ill, in the quest for Tanelon. The Eternal Champion also provides the seed for the culmination of his second run at tying his oeuvre together, as it introduces Erikos' dual existence as the 20th century London intellectual, John Dacre, who, arguably, could be a cipher for Moorcock himself. Much like his earlier works The Dreaming City in the final programme, Moorcock stated that the development and various versions of The Eternal Champion date back at least ten years prior to its first publication date. And, like many of his novels from that period, it underwent some revisions in the subsequent decades. We'll have a look at just a couple of those revisions as we go, but we won't do a page-by-page comparison, as, for the most part, they remain largely the same, with just some alterations to apply a little bit of consistency. 
My reading copy today is the 1992 Millennium Omnibus edition that collects the Eternal Champion, the Phoenix in Obsidian, known in the US as the Silver Warriors, and the Dragon in the Sword. So, sit back, fluff up your cushions, take a swig of lockdown juice, and join Phil and I as we rediscover Erico's in the Eternal Champion. All right, okay, we're back in Derry and Tom's roof garden, and this time I'm here with Phil. Phil, this is your first show since the birthday episode. It is, hello. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, this is a, a, a much delayed episode because of lockdown. So it's been two months, um, I think it was 5th of March since the last episode, and of course since then we've pretty much been exclusively on lockdown. Bored shitless, but you know what? It's all right, because we're back. So we've picked up the Eternal Champion, because actually I gave you the option of who you wanted to do, and you chose Erico's, didn't you? I enjoyed Erico's, I remember. It's quite a while back. It is a while. I remember bits, but enough for me to want to go back in there. Yeah, so we got back into it. I've got to confess... Part of the pleasure of this for me is doing it in person, so I've looked at recording and ways of doing things, but there's no better way than doing it with a glass of booze in our hand and some fine food in our bellies. And we've had the food, we've had a bit of booze, but now we've got some finer booze in the shape of a delicious old-fashioned, which I must say is one of your specialities. So what's the whiskey in here? We have got turkey rye. Wild turkey rye. Wild turkey rye. Okay, cheers. Cheers. Mm, yeah, delicious. I do prefer an old-fashioned with rye. It's I do less as sweet. well, yeah. Grand. So, we chose Erico's and we've launched into the Eternal Champion. Now, the, the, the thing that struck me most about rereading the Eternal Champion again for the first time, probably, I don't know, 25 or more years, is straight off the bat, after... Covering some Elric and some Hawkmoon. Okay, we haven't got into Corum yet, but we'll be doing that with Lodz before long. And also doing a little bit of Jericho Cornelius. This is the first one since I've started my rereads that's in the first person. And is actually directly from the perspective of the character. Which is interesting, because over the ones that we've been doing so far, um, there's always a switch of narrative perspective which freshens things up. But in this case, it's all from the protagonist's perspective. Which is quite unusual for Michael Moorcock. Off the top of my head, I can only think of, and this is literally off the top of my head, one of the series where it's all first-person perspective. And that's the Colonel Pyatt novels from the 80s and 90s, although I don't think he finished the last one until the early 2000s, which relies very much on an unreliable narrator shtick, um, which works effectively very, very well. But this is uh, slightly different, although in terms of narrative, um, I don't think you can kind of judge him... Well, let's let's wait on that, and we'll 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 see what we think as we go Do you go think along. he went for a first person because of Erico's being many people, many characters, and only he could describe it succinctly? Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the angles that he's going with, isn't it? Mm. Because we find out very quickly that this is a a character. This, of course, this book is the first time the Eternal Champion is ever mentioned. The phrase has been coined for this book specifically, the title of the book, and I suppose. We'll we'll get to pronunciation in a second, because we always do a bit of pronunciation wrangling on this show, (laughs) and uh, we'll get there shortly. 
But of course, so th this this kicks off with a, a little preamble, which uh, I'll I'll read out straight off the bat. So chapter one, a call across time. Between wakefulness and sleeping, we have most of us had the illusion of hearing voices, scraps of conversation, phrases spoken in unfamiliar tones. Sometimes we attempt to attune our minds so that we can hear more, but we are rarely successful. These illusions are called hypnagogic hallucinations, the beginning of the dreams we shall later experience as we sleep. There was a woman, a child, an occupation, a name, John Dacre, a sense of frustration, a need for fulfilment. Though I loved them, I know I loved them. So we kick off, there's a guy in bed in winter, musing on mortality and futility of human existence, as, as one does, and occasionally sleeping, he hears his voices calling to him. So at this point, he hears this, uh, these voices, which he says sound like gibberish to him, which say, Ericos, Ericos, Ericos. Uh, but that leads to our first pronunciation, because just to be bloody awkward, there's an umlaut over the E. So, how do you pronounce, how do you pronounce Ericos? Ericos. Ericos, yeah. Um, I, I looked up E with an umlaut, and how it's supposed to be pronounced, and it's a hard E. So, technically it should be Ericos E. <laughs> but that sounds bloody stupid, so I'm not doing it. I'm sticking with Ericos. Of course, at, at this stage, also we should talk about the uh, the editions that were uh, that were reading, because of course I've got my old original early seventies Mayflower edition with the uh, with a rather outrageous cover, which uh, I'm sure I've got it kicking around here somewhere. So, describe this cover to me and tell me. There's a lot going on there. There is a lot going on. <laughs> so, number one, is it reflective of the contents? I would not have put that as how I perceive Erico's to look. No. At all. So, uh, Simon Perrin on Twitter, who uh, did me my fabulous uh, Companions of Elric sketch, said that it looks like Nicole Kidman oh, feeding blood to uh, an off-brand Shiva, which I think is a, a fairly decent des description, but it, it, it bears no resemblance whatsoever to the contents. <laughs> I would have said an Indian deity as well. Yeah, yeah. So so this was my original uh, copy of The Eternal Champion that I read in the 80s. And this is from, let's have a look, 1976, this edition. Um, originally published in 1970. But I started to read this and sadly, my spine started to crack. Oh. Not my actual spine, the spine of the book. So I decided that um, I'd better leave that one alone and just keep it close to hand for... For posterity's sake. Um, oh, Nicole's also got a builder's bum on the cover. She has. Yeah. It's definitely going on. Yeah, she, she rocks a pink builder's bum quite well on that cover. <laughs> so I've read the... I, I decided to go with the Millennium Edition, the Omnibus Edition, which weighs, unfortunately, a bloody ton, so it made it difficult to read in bed. And this was published... Ooh, let's have a look. 1992, this edition. And there are some subtle differences, um, because over time... Moorcock had a habit of revising, revisiting and revising some of his novels whenever they were reprinted. And when they were reprinted in collections, some of these revisions took place. Ah, right. Because yeah. my edition is 2013. Yeah, so you've got the Garnet's Collected Edition. And I'm, I'm not sure, because I've not read that one. I yeah. picked it up recently. I'm not sure if there are any significant differences 
between that one and this one. But we're not going to go into any great detail regarding differences in um, no in additions. Although we will call out just a couple of interesting things as we go along, where where I did check out just little differences and little revisions. So we've decided we're going to stick with Ericos. Mm-hmm. So this geezer, who it turns out is called John Dacre. Mm, John Dacre. So John Dacre has um, this specific and unique quality um, when it comes to Mocock characters in that he's a 20th century guy living in the 60s, 70s, who knows, because Mocock claims that this was first written in its initial form in the late 50s and revised continually in the 1960s by the point it was actually published in 1970. After, of course, he'd published um, a number of Elric stories, although before he'd started on his grand Elric reconciliation with Elric of Melanbone, but also he'd published the Hawkmoon novels and the first Coram series. So in some ways, this is a capstone to those things. I don't think it matters, though, when it was set, because I envisage, when we talk about John Dacre, when he keeps going back to him, that it's in this time. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it, your own view. It doesn't really matter. And it's interesting you should say that because Moorcock has attempted over the decades to tie everything, his eternal champion sequences up with a nice bow. And he did it for the first time in the 70s to a not entirely satisfactory level, which we'll get to at some point on the show. But then he did it again in a series which culminated in the early 2000s where everything comes full circle back to John Dacre. And I won't offer any spoilers as to exactly how that works out. But I wasn't entirely satisfied with that either, <laughs> to be fair. But it's, it's very interesting, and, and, and especially when you consider that his first version of this was drafted in the late 50s, and the culmination of the John Dacre saga, as uh, as it is, probably took place well over 50 years later in a book called... I was trying to remember, I think it was White Wolf's Son. Yeah, White Wolf's Son. So, anyway, back to the point. So John Dacre is laid in bed... And he starts concentrated on these voices, and they become a little bit clearer. This is John Dacre's thoughts. Had I hung for an eternity in limbo? Was I alive? Dead? Was there a memory of a world that lay in the far past or the distant future? Of another world which seemed closer? And the names? Was I John Dacre or Erikos? Was I either of these? Many other names. Coram Hale and Ersee. Oh, God, pronunciation. Orbeck, Elric, Rakir, Simon, Bastable, Cornelius, Von Beck, Asquinal, Hawkmoon. Fled away down the ghostly rivers of my memory. I hung in darkness, bodiless. A man spoke. Where was he? I tried to look but had no eyes with which to see. Erica is the champion. Where are you? Another voice. Father, it's only a legend. No, Islander. I feel he is listening. Erikos. And that brings us to our one of our few delves that we will have into the differences between the later editions and the earlier editions. Because there, of course, we've got some pretty familiar names, haven't we? So just read those names out again. Coram. So we've got Coram, yes. Orbeck. So Orbeck is El Orbeck who forged the young kingdoms from the the stuff of chaos and created the world of the young kingdoms of Elric. Seatenbeg. Seat. Ah, I so like that. already we've got three versions of this passage. 
because seat and beg isn't in either of these. Oh, isn't it? So let me go back to the initial one. So, in the 1970 edition, was I John Dacre or Ericos? Was I either of these? Many other names. Coram Bannon Fluran. Orbeck. Oh, Coram? Yeah, Coram Bannon Fluran. Orbeck. Elric. Rakia. Simon. Oh. Simon. Cornelius. Asquinal. Hawkmoon. So, in the original, it appears that Coram, as we know him, isn't yet established. Then we've got El Orbeck, okay. Elric, okay. Rakia, the Red Archer. Mm. who at this point is considered potentially to be another aspect of the Eternal Champion, but really only pops up in the Elric books as a companion. Simon, well, who knows? Cornelius, Jerry Cornelius, Asquinall, sounds familiar, but I can't remember, and Hawkmoon. So let's just spin very briefly on to the Millennium Edition then. So in the Millennium Edition, 20-odd years later, um, Coram, correctly named, Orbeck, Elric, Rakia, Simon, Bastable, Oswald Bastable of the Warlord of the Air series, so that's an addition. Cornelius von Beck, that's another addition from the War Under the World's Pain and the City in the Autumn Stars. Asquinall, Hawkbone. So, who have, you, who have you got in yours? I've got Coram, Obeck, Seaton Beg. So, Seaton Beg is Moorcock's um, kind of Sexton Blake type detective who pops up in quite a few novels, but mostly in a series called The Metatemporal Detective, where his arch-enemy is Zenith the Albino. Oh. Elric, Rakia, Ilian, Una. Ilian of Garathorm. So Ilian of Garathorm is a character that was introduced in the 70s in the second Count Brass trilogy. Una. Una person, or Una the Dream Thief. Depending on which series. Is it double O-N-A? It is. Yeah, so Una the Dream Thief, uh, a key character who I think is introduced in one of his early 80s Elric novels, The Fortress of the Pearl. Simon, Bastable, Cornelius, The Rose. The Rose, so from Revenge of the Rose. Von Beck. Yeah. Asquiel and Hawkman. So that's three different versions of the novel. Three different lists of names, which is constantly revised as it's gone by to expand on the mythos of the Eternal Champion. Interesting. So, we've mentioned this is in the first person. That's quite unusual for Marcock. But now we know that John Dacre is being summoned under the name Erikos. Dacre is, is beginning to perceive the nature of those that call him now, and the world and the nature of their predicament. And he sees a world, he sees continents, and he sees cities. Then I saw the fortresses of the continent of Necrolala, with the capital city Necronal chief among them, built on and into and about a mighty mountain, peaked by the spreading palaces of its warrior kings. Now I began to remember as, in the background of my awareness, I heard a voice calling Erikos, Erikos, Erikos. The warrior kings of Necronal, kings for two thousand years of a humanity united at war and united again. The warrior kings of whom King Ragnaros was the last living and ageing now, with only a daughter, Ayolinda, to carry on his line. Old and weary with hate, but still hating. Hating the unhuman folk whom he called the Hounds of Evil, mankind's age-old enemies, reckless and wild, linked, it was said, by a thin line of blood to the human race, an outcome of a union between an ancient king and the evil one, Asmobana. Hated by King Ragnos as soulless immortals and slaves of Asmabana's machinations. After this, Dacre begins to relent because they're continually calling on him 
and out of body, he arrived at the palace of the summoning in a crypt, the crypt of Erikos, summoned by King Ragnaros and his hot daughter, Ayolinda, <laughs> who, obviously, she's going to be hot. And Ragnaros is exhilarated. Ayolinda is coy, and Dirka stroke Erikos. He, he's all in, especially when he manifests himself and he sees his sword. So he's super impressed with this, uh, with this ridiculous sword. He begins to take on shape and flesh and muscle, and he feels the thrust and the strength of his blood, and he takes a breath, and he says, I took a huge breath and touched my body. It was a powerful body, tall and fit. I stood before them in the flesh. I was their god, and I had returned. I have come, I said. I am here, King Ragnos. I have left nothing worthwhile behind me, but do not let me regret that leaving. So that's a bit harsh, because we found out a little bit later that he's got a wife and a son um, back in back in London. But he's left nothing behind that he uh, doesn't regret leaving. So he looks at Eilinda, who drops her eyes modestly, and then, as if against her will, raises them again to regard me. I turn to the dais on my right. My sword, I said, reaching for it. I heard King Ragnos sigh with satisfaction. They are doomed now, the dogs. You see, you say he doesn't regret it, but if you, you know, through the ten chapters that we cover for this, there are some regrets, but he knows there's no point in dwelling on it because there's nothing he can do. Yeah. He made this promise millennia ago and he has to stand by it to come when called. Yeah. Yeah, true. It's, 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 uh, he's, he's already taking quite a serious tone, but it's, 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 a, it's a power fantasy, this, isn't it? It's, there's this guy who was laid in bed in rainy London in winter, dreaming about being summoned by uh, an old king and his hot daughter. And when he arrives, he's got a massive sword and they're super, super hot for him and wanting to save the world against the hounds of evil. It's just a straight-up power fantasy, isn't it? This, and no doubt this is what appealed to me when I read it when I was 13. <laughs> because mo- I think most fantasy is, to some degree, some kind of power fantasy. Could you get the bits where he's quite morose and he's looking back all the time and then they hand him the sword and he's like, yeah, this like, is oh, great. Yeah, yeah, I fancy a bit of this. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, so I'm Decker of Stroke Ericos in Chapter 2, The Champion Has Come. He's taking this pretty well and he's buying into it. So Ragnos buggers off momentarily to get a scabbard for the sword, leaving Ericos and Ireland to stare at each other. Bit awkward. He stood there butt-naked. Um, swinging yeah. in the wind and she's there being coy um, and he's, she's showing off everything he's got but anyway Erikos accepts the scabbard and has a play with it but uh, Ragnos and Eilinda are kind of crapping themselves because it turns out the sword radiates some kind of poison mm. or radioactivity I turned and picked up the sword the handle was bound in gold thread and was vibrant to my touch the pommel was a globe of deep red onyx and the hilt was worked in strips of silver and black onyx the blade itself was long and straight and sharp, but it did not shine like steel. Instead, in colour, it resembled lead. The sword was beautifully balanced, and I swung it through the air and laughed aloud, and it seemed to laugh with me. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Erikos, sheathe it, cried Ragnos in alarm. Sheathe it, the radiation is death to all but yourself. Reluctantly, I slid the sword into its scabbard. Why was I the only one who could wear the sword without being affected by the radiation? Was it because in that transition from my own age to this I had become constitutionally different in some way? Was it that the ancient Erikos and the unborn John Dacre, or was it vice versa, had metabolisms which had adapted to protect themselves against the power 
which flowed from the sword. So once again, we have that um, that mo that fantasy trope of the hero with the super super powerful sword. Very very similar to Elric and the Black Sword. And actually, the Black Sword motif will pop up quite a few times through various different series as we go along. One thing I did pick up when I started reading is the transition of Dacre's thoughts, personality, and with his soul diminishing and Eriko's building was a similarity I kind of picked up on between Doctor Who. Oh. Different that it's totally different people with Eriko's, different yeah. entities. Yeah. But that first adaptation when he becomes, re-energises. Uh, regenerates. Regenerates. Yeah. Getting used to the body, the differences. Ah. Just some of the... Yeah, that never occurred to me. Yeah, yeah, so he's, 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 he's doing a... I mean, fortunately, he's, I think if Erica were played by Tom Baker, it might be a bit weird. But it's, <laughs> it's that kind of regeneration scene where they're... Well, you know, it's, it's like if Doctor Who was six foot four, naked, and had an enormous sword. Yeah, why not? Hopefully that'll be the next series. Next regeneration, we want naked <laughs> Doctor Who with giant sword. So he also says, uh, I will need clothes, I said, for I was naked. So he's, he's, he's had a play with his sword and he's suddenly twigged out. He's actually butt naked and he needs some clover. So he gets dressed in lots of fineries and he's taken by a posh caravan under escort by the ostentatiously garbed warriors to the capital, a vast city, Necronel. And Erikos is greeted by crowds of cheering peeps and... Uh, and we meet Grumpy Katon for the first time. And I love Katon. He's amazing. Do you think they put him in a caravan? A, because he was naked. B, because he's just transitioned. Or C, so that all of the people could see him. Yeah, they're definitely showing him off, aren't they? Because um, they've got... Uh, these, these ostentatiously garbed warriors are all in super ceremonial gear. They've all got heavy war horses. There are types of camels that are kneeling before him. There's an interesting little bit here. It says, we walked down the hill, and as we walked, I noticed I still had the ring on my finger I'd worn as John Dacre, a ring of woven silver that my wife had given me. My wife, I could not recall her face. I felt I should have left the ring behind me on that other body, but perhaps there is no body left behind. So he passes kneeling beasts, guards stiffens and acknowledges arrival, and they essentially are now showing him off as they travel towards Necronel. Because they can't show him off on a... This is our, our saviour on a horse and because he's naked yeah. and he needs time to come round and to Yeah. But just to say this is the this is the person, even though he's hidden in a caravan, yeah. who is gonna save us. Yeah. They've they've clobbered him up. I bet the caravan's posh as well. Yeah. And uh, and we we meet Katon at this point. And it says King Ragnar says, Katon, ride ahead and tell the people that Erico's the champion has come to drive the evil ones back to the mountains of sorrow. The man he addressed was a sullen-faced individual, doubtless the captain of the Imperial Guard. Aye, sire, he growled. And, uh, and we, we, have, uh, we spend a lot of time with Katon, and I like Katon. He's, he's <laughs> extremely shrewd um, and, and probably deserves a little bit better than he gets. Well, you probably you get to think that he actually gets pleasure out of how he speaks to him. Oh, yeah, I love it. He's, he's constantly winding Erikos up, isn't he, and baiting him. Yeah. So, chapter three, The Elder and Threat. And we get this little passage here at the beginning. Now the cheering gradually fell away as the little caravan ascended the winding road to the Palace of Ten Thousand Windows. A silence settled, and I heard only the creak of the howder in which I sat, the occasional jingle of harness, or the clatter of a horse's hoof. 
I began to feel discomforted. There was something about the mood of the city that was not altogether sane and which could not be explained away in conventional terms. Certainly the people were afraid of enemy attack. Certainly they were weary of fighting. But it seemed to me that this mood held something morbid, a mixture of hysterical elation and melancholic depression that I had sensed only once before in my previous life, during my single visit to a mental hospital. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what strikes me about that is 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 passing through this this city, and it, and it does refer um, to people of of all social backgrounds who are all cheering him and are all almost maniacal in their in their love for him and their hatred of the enemy. It all sounds a bit gammony. Don't you think? <laughs> it's you know it's it's like it it, it could be it could be like uh, the Queen's Jubilee celebrations in Grimsby. So I'm, I'm getting hard stirred. But you know it's it's like this 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 fear and hatred of the other. So he's, he's walked into this situation and everybody from high to low are all completely arrayed against the hounds of evil in inverted mm. commas the people over the over the sea almost brainwashed yeah they are the evil they must be destroyed mm. Mm. they're the root of all our bloody problems but I love the go. I love the fact that he refers to the mental hospital because he also he talks about experiencing paranoid schizophrenic mm. symptoms yeah which obviously in the job that we yeah. do being psyche nurses, it just kind of yeah. Um, when, when we were covering uh, Jill in the skull with uh, with Natasha, um, we had some the, the the whole subject of mental illness came up. We don't have a mentality machine in this one, or um, or wires to stick in people's brains, but the subject of um, of psychiatric conditions comes up certainly when we talk about. He starts. There are times when he does doubt himself and his sanity. That he's real. Yeah. That this is all a delusion. That he's woken into. Yeah. So they arrive at the t- at the uh, Palace of Ten Thousand Windows, and uh, Erikos gets the tour of the palace, and he uh, he creeps on Eilinda a little bit. He's only just met her. She is the princess, okay, but you know this this is a guy who still ostensibly is married with a son in London, and who's got a hot princess in front of him, and is uh, is automatically slipping straight into uh, into type. I have to be honest. I've really struggled to picture, except for in a, a, as a modern thing, the type, the Palace of Ten Thousand Windows. I don't yeah. like its name, yeah. but that's just a purely personal. I've forgot Ten Thousand Windows. I'd love to count because I bet they are. <laughs> I bet it's just a rank exaggeration. <laughs> King Ragnos smiled with pride as he gestured around the great courtyard. You like this, Erikos? I had it built myself shortly after I came to the throne. The courtyard was a gloomy sort of place until then. It did not fit with the rest of the palace. It is very beautiful, I said. I turned to look at Eilinda, who had joined us. And not the only beautiful thing you have helped create, for here is the most beautiful adornment to your palace. Uh, bit creepy. <laughs> bit creepy there, Erikos, but, you know, I suppose. Fancy tropes. So, Ragnos muses on how his attention has been drawn away from beauty to battle planning to defeat the Eldrin menace. And Erikos is introduced to the palace staff and then quartered. And so his quarters, what does he get? He don't, you know, he doesn't even get the presidential suite. He gets twenty rooms plus ten personal slaves, and his only real issue is it's a bit opulent. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's a bit excessive, isn't it? Twenty rooms and ten slaves. Yeah, well, he's just come from a life 
probably in a house, normal house with a yeah. wife and child. Yeah. But after rest and some slave-administered tucker, Raganas and Katon, the grumpy captain of the Imperial Guard, take Erikos to do some planning. And we find that the southern continent of Mernadin is now under Elden control and they've taken an outpost which the powers of the forces of humanity had held for quite some time. And Erikos teases out that despite humans having no desire to occupy Mernadin due to ten of the Hounds of Evil, they've nevertheless occupied this port of Paphanal for just five years. Oh, sorry, no, they've, they've occupied it for quite some time, but five years ago the Eldren took it back. And there is a hint that at some time past the Eldren had been driven from their lands into the mountains. And Raganos and Kaitan expect an invasion at any time. But we get this first hint that actually the Hounds of Evil, in inverted commas, were driven into the mountains some years past by uh, an invading force of humans. And actually that continent, they don't want it. They just did it purely to decimate the enemy. They ran roughshod over that entire continent, but didn't occupy it, didn't use it, just maintained this part for uh, strategic purposes. That causes Erikos to question Kaitan and Raganos um, as to the Eldrin's motives. Especially when all they wanted is to take their land back. Yeah. So Erikos has asked about how they've taken prisoners, what do the prisoners tell them, how have the Eldrin leaders justified their war against humanity? King Raganos smiled patronisingly. You've forgotten a great deal, Erikos, if you've forgotten the Eldrin. They're not human. They're clever. They're cold. They have smooth, deceitful tongues from which they would lull a man into a false sense of tranquility before tearing his heart from his body with their bare fangs. They are brave. I'll give them that. Under torture, they die, refusing to tell us their true plans. They're cunning. They try to make us believe their talk of peace, of mutual trust and mutual help, hoping that we will drop our defences long enough so that they may turn and destroy us or get us to look them full in the face so they can work the evil eye upon us. Do not be naive, Erikos. Do not attempt to deal with the Eldren as you would deal with a human being, for if you do so, you would be doomed. They have no souls as we understand souls. They have no love save a cold loyalty to their cause and to their master, Asmabana. Realise this, Erikos, the Eldren are demons. They are fiends to whom Asmabana, in his dreadful blasphemy, has granted something like a human form. But you must not be blinded by the form. That which is inside an Eldrin is not human. It is everything, in fact, that is inhuman. Caton's first twisted. You cannot trust an Eldrin wolf. They are treacherous, immoral and evil. We shall not be safe until their whole race is destroyed, utterly destroyed, so that not a fragment of their flesh, not a droplet of their blood, not a splinter of their bone, not a strand of their hair is left to taint the earth. And I speak literally, Erikos. For whilst one finger clipping of an Eldrin survives upon our world, then there is the chance that Asmabana can recreate his servants and attack us again. That demon brood must be burned to the finest ash. Every man, every female and every youngling burned, then cast to the wind. The clean wind. That is our mission, Erikos, the mission of humanity, and we have the good one's blessing for that mission. Yeah, that's a bit ash. And at that point, I went, ooh. <laughs> yeah. So this has been handed down from centuries. This hatred is so ingrained in everybody. Yeah. Erico's, who doesn't possess that, is going, ooh, hold on. And as an outsider, you go, oh, they're talking of peace. Yeah. They're, even under torture, they're not giving you any plans of their war. Yeah. Maybe there isn't any. Yeah. 
and I kind of start to feel sorry for the Eldrin. Yeah, yeah. At this at this point, you start thinking, oh, uh, hang on a minute, they're 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 a bit hardcore. This mm. lot, you know, they're, they're effectively talking of of killing children, of genocide, of of wiping them out, and so not a fingernail remains. And it's really hateful. The things that they're saying are hateful. Yeah. The dehumanising them. Uh, which is, uh, of course, a very, very common thing, which we see all the time whenever whenever there's any kind of inv- invasion or war-type narrative that's foisted upon a, a public, it always dehumanises the object of, of the aggression. And we see it all the time, don't we? Not just in war kind of situations. We see Just some, some of the rhetoric around um, some of the political things over the last few years of dehumanising migrants, dehumanising, you know, people who effectively just want a better life. We see it, children in cages, etc, etc, etc. It's, um, it's, it's, it's disturbing. And of course, when I read this as a teenager, not all of that will pretty much have been lost on me because it all just sounded like, you know, I mean, I was reading Sven Hassel books and the like at the time. But reading this now, that, that language just leaps straight off the page. It rings so many alarm bells. It's like when any nation tells you all the bad things about someone and you hear a specific story, everyone jumps on it. It could be an absolute pile of bollocks, but they've heard it, so it must be true Mm. that this migrant family have got a a car and a five-bedroomed house. and, And then because of social media, admittedly, you get to know a lot of stuff. But it also is a way of spreading a lot of stuff that's totally untrue. Yeah. Well, you can imagine what the, if they had social media in Necrolala. <laughs> I reckon. I reckon Necrolala Facebook <laughs> will be absolutely fucking swamped in Necrolala <laughs> first posts, and you and you'd be sacking off your auntie for liking Necrolala <laughs> first posts. I would nonstop. I'd, I'd get off Necrolala Facebook just you'd like lose- I have in real life. You'd lose a lot of friends. Yeah. Well, fucking hell, Uncle John. Necrolala first posts. That's it. I'm out of here. Anyway. But, so I'm, but, <laughs> you digress. Yeah. But on the back of all this, Ayolinda uh, turns up and says, Then I heard another voice, a sweeter voice, and I glanced towards the door. It was Ayolinda. You must lead us to victory, Ericos, she said candidly. What Katon says is true, no matter how fierce he declaims it. The facts are as he tells you. You must lead us to victory. I looked into her eyes. I drew a deep breath and my face felt hard and cold. I will lead you, I said. So, you know, Islander turns up, flutters her eyelashes, is like, oh, okay, fuck it, I'm all in. Let's genocide. So the next morning, he wakes to the sound of his slaves preparing his breakfast. But he's confused for a second. Is, is it that point that, um, what do they call it, hypnagogic dream state or whatever? Hypnagogic, yeah. Yeah, so he's, he's, he's not sure whether it's the slaves or is it his wife moving around getting ready to wake up the boy as she did every morning. Says, I opened my eyes expecting to see her. I did not see her, nor did I see my room in my apartment where I had lived as John Dacre. Nor did I see slaves. Instead, I saw Ayolinda. She was smiling down at me as she prepared my breakfast with her own hands. Oh, ooh. I felt guilty for a moment, as if I'd betrayed my wife in some obscure way. Then I realised there was nothing I could be ashamed of. I was the victim of fate. Of forces which I could not hope to understand. I was not John Dacre. I was Erico's. I realised it would be best for me if I were to insist on that. A man divided between two identities is a sick man. I resolved to forget John Dacre as soon as possible. Since I was Erico's now, I could concentrate 
and be an Ericos only, in that I was a fatalist. Well, that's convenient. Well, <laughs> it's better than split personality. Well, I suppose so. But, or multiple you know, the way, the way I read that is he's waking up thinking, just, <laughs> just for that second, there's that frisson of, oh, hang on a minute, I am married. And then it's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I'm not really John Dacre anymore. Yeah, give me my breakfast, Islander. But if you try to put yourself in his position, which you obviously can't do, yeah. that must be really frustrating and strange. It, it must, but it still it still feeds into that male power fancy thing, doesn't it? It's like, right, okay, so um, I've been called in the middle of the night and I've gone to this fantasy land where I've been... I'm being held up as a god with godlike powers, with a massive magic sword that no one else can wield. The king's daughter thinks I'm the bee's knees. She's super hot. She's now in my bedroom cooking me breakfast with her own hands and I'm dismissing any thoughts of my wife because you know what, I'm here now and I'm being fatalistic about it. Actually, yeah, and it was only the night before he was John... or the day before that he was John Dacre. Yeah. So it's interesting in that 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 is some kind of male power fantasy. Yeah. What would a female power fantasy be? There's a question for you. There is. Because it's it's interesting that you're addressing this all all of this from the perspective of kind of evaluating him as somebody who's potentially mentally ill, <laughs> which is your one. Yeah. Because you're a mental health professional. I'm reading it. I'm I'm a mental health professional, but I'm reading it as yeah, thirteen <laughs> year old me thought this was cool, big sword, hot princess. Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll buy into a bit of genocide. Get to do battle, Get to come do back battle. the hero. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what would be the equivalent female power fantasy? You're going to have to think about that one. Uh, yeah, that one's That's not going to... That's your gonna, homework. Yeah. For, for the next episode, that is your homework. You've got to tell me what the equivalent female power fantasy is. So, they spend time discussing that, you know, they're in a kind of a peculiar situation. And Islander is hot for a bloke who she suspects to be a god. Mm. Um, Erico's is uh, a bit more circumspect and a bit of a buzzkill. And he suggests that he's mortal and this upsets her and the enormity of the expectations on him become a bit more real. Um, we should also point out that this we've actually found out the name of his sword. And, uh, Kanajana. <laughs> Kanajana. Which, which, <laughs> which sounds like an 80s terrible pop band with mullets. It's not the best name, yeah. I have to say. Yeah, so, so he's... Yeah. So he's, uh, he, he's, he's suddenly realising the expectations. And he says... Uh, Suddenly, I became aware of the responsibility I tacitly agreed to assume. A responsibility not just to this beautiful woman, but to the whole human race. I swallowed hard and fell back on my pillows as I, Linda, rushed from the room. She's upset at the idea that, of course, that he, he, he's expressing that he may be mortal. She, she's not buying into that. She wants him to be godlike. Could I possibly bear such a burden? A burden? A burden. burden. Did I wish to bear such a burden? I did not. I had no great faith in my own powers and there was no reason to believe that those powers were any more potent than, say, Caton's. Caton was, after all, far more experienced in warfare than I. He had a right to be resentful of me. I had taken over his role, robbed him of his power and of a responsibility which he had been prepared to shoulder. And I was unproven. Suddenly I saw Caton's point of view and sympathised with it. He won't sympathise for Caton too much longer. But... I understand he is unproven. She's treating him like he's a god. Yeah. There is nothing to say he is a god. She believes he's he's immortal. He's just woken up from being John Dacre, very mortal. Yeah. To them saying, you're kind of godlike, you're immortal. Yeah. 
that's a really dangerous, slippery road if he did just accept that. It is, yeah. And I suppose if you do wake up in that situation and everybody around you is, is telling you you're, you're effectively a god and you're the saviour of humanity, mm. you know, it's tempting to buy into that, isn't it? Mm. More delicious old-fashioned. It's going down well. Mm. Mm. You need to have a break for another one shortly. Mm-hmm. But let's get through the next chapter. So the next chapter is Katon. So Erikos is practising with the sword Kamayana below decks because... Oh, you course, cook, sorry, how do you pronounce it? Kanayana. Kanayana, Kanajana. Kanajana. Kanaj... Okay. Kanamarana. <laughs> Banana Ramama. The sword Banana Ramama. <laughs> um, of course, what we haven't mentioned is... Um, is have, have they actually set off now? They're, they're on the no. way somewhere, aren't they? No. They're not on the way anywhere? No, no, no. Oh, right. They're about to start doing battle plans in the palace. Oh, right. Okay, so they're not gone nowhere. No, you're getting ahead of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So Eric, Erikos is uh, is practising. He's getting a hard-on for being a mighty warrior now. He loves his sword. He's well into his sword. And uh, he says about the sword, it made me into something greater than I felt I'd ever been before. It made me into man. It made me into a man, a warrior, a champion. His power trip's interrupted by uh, a slave sent to... Um, summon him, well not summon him Katon would like to speak with him so he puts his sword back on his peg and Katon comes in and uh, he's still being arsey <laughs> Erikos offers him some hospitality and he's like nah I don't, I, I don't need anything I want out from you, I don't want no refreshments and Erikos is, is trying his hard to please him because he's trying really hard to, to respect him but Katon's having none of it, he's just not impressed he's just Intent on ir- irritating him, yeah, and getting up his nose, yeah, and he wants to start war on war tactics, and he's still pretty prickly, but Erikos just cuts to the chase. I said quietly, "We must learn to work together, my lord Katon. I bow to your great experience as a warrior leader. I acknowledge that you have had much more recent knowledge of the Eldren than have I. I need your help, surely as much as King Ragnos believes he needs mine." Katon seemed slightly comforted by this. He cleared his throat and continued. Once Paphanel, province and city are taken, we shall have a beachhead from which other attacks inland can be made. With Paphanel again in our hands, we can decide our own strategy, initiate action, rather than react to the Eldrin's strategy. Only once we push them back to the mountains will we have the wearying task of clearing them all out. It will take years, but it is what we should have done in the first place. That, however, will be a matter for ordinary military administration and will not, conter- not concern us directly. Once again, there's a reference there to a previous campaign and we still haven't heard of any kind of preemptive aggression from these villainous Eldren. So previously, they feel it's a mistake that they chased them into the mountains but they never finished them off. After some reasoning, Erikos essentially parleys with Katon and they agree a working relationship in that Katon must assume Erikos is what he appears to be, otherwise humanity is doomed. It's suspicious, though. Oh, it's super suspicious, but Erikos just uses a, a, little, a little bit of logic um, to say, that, you know what, you, you've got to assume that I am who everybody believes me to be, because if I'm not, well, there's not a great deal you can do about it, and if I'm not, well, you're doomed. And also, I can wield the sword and nobody else can, so to some degree, that really kind of proves... Who I am and proves that I'm that I'm legit. But when he said, "Do you believe I am Erikos the Eternal, the Champion Return?" I must believe that also. 
Yeah. That's not saying he does. No, no. He's, he's just acknowledging that, that he has to. Mm. It's almost his duty to. Yeah. Because otherwise, humanity is knacked. So, yeah, Katon's still still not having it. But this, I really like this couple of pages, because it's a couple... Of, often, Murkoch rattles along uh, a tremendous pace normally, but I always really enjoy it when you just get a couple of pages of character interaction. And this is a really, really good example of um, of how good he is at that. And, you know, okay, Katon could be assumed to be quite a, a, a thinly drawn cartoon character. He's grumpy... Because Elric's kind of taken his, uh, his place, place as, as the leader of the forces and, and he didn't really buy into it and there's an element of jealousy. But there's a, there's a wryness and, and uh, a black humour to Katon, the barbs, that I found really entertaining. And uh, Mocock does that really, really well. And he did it well in Hartman with uh, um, Baron Melidas. Baron Melidas is... is in some ways, he's a, a, a caricature bully villain, but when you actually get the pages of dialogue, he's arch, he's, uh, he's a little bit sassy. And um, I, I like the fact that Ericos says, and what if I am not Ericos? And that brings up quite a good dialogue about his suspicions. Yeah. If it wasn't for one thing, could he be Eldron? Yeah, well, yeah. That's right. So Katon is kind of worried that he might be some kind of Eldrin trick as Spy, well. Spy, maybe? Yeah, mm. yeah. But they, they come to that agreement. I wait for him to say something further, but then he replaced his helmet firmly on his head, dug his thumb into the side of his mouth and picked at a tooth with the nail. He withdrew the thumb and stared at it intently for a moment. Then he looked at the map and murmured, Well, at least we have an understanding. With that, it will be easy to fight this stinking war. I nodded. Much easier, I think. So it's, it's also interesting that Katon has, has got a weariness about him, even though he's... It, it makes you think, when he goes off on his massive rant about how they must murder all of the Eldrin, including the women and children, then now he's referring to it as a stinking war, as if he's he's tired and cynical about the whole thing. He really is a, a, a professional soldier, and he's representing... You know, effectively, what he needs to represent. There's, there's just something a little bit more shrewd about him than any of the other characters. Yeah, and you know the fact that Ericos says, "I know that you're not a fool. If you were a fool, I should not have bothered to have had this conversation." Yeah. So he realizes this is a clever man. Yeah, and he, and in those quite a moments, he doesn't appear to be that out and out zealot. No. So Ericos asks about the fleet and Katon says we're recruiting all we can even women are used in certain tasks and boys you were told that loud Ericos and it was true the whole of humanity fights the Eldrin warriors so they've decided this is the war to end all wars yeah. haven't they yeah to wipe out a race a single race so that they can have this peace yeah and it says I said nothing but I'd begun to admire the spirit of this people. I was less divided in my mind concerning the rights or wrongs of what I did. The folk of this strange time and place which I found myself were fighting for nothing more or less than the survival of their species. But then another thought came to me. Could not be the same be said of the Eldren? I dismissed the thought. At least Caton and I had that in common. We refused to concern ourselves with speculation on moral and sentimental issues. We had a task to perform. We had assumed the responsibility for that task. We should do it to the best of our ability. And at that point, 
you realise that John Dacre's now sinking below the surface. John Dacre's passing into the subconsciousness of this character now. Because John Dacre, the intellectual from London, surely would never be so blasé about all-out war. Wiping out a race. Yeah, yeah. Total war, including the destruction of women and children. So John Dacre now is is falling into the background and, and Eric Hose is, is is consuming the entirety of him. So Eric Hose sets to planning for war, pouring over maps and charts with generals and admirals. And he says, when not conferring with the commanders of the armies and, na- and navies, I practiced weaponry, riding, until I became skilled in those arts. It was not a question of learning so much as remembering. Just as the feel of my strange sword had become familiar, so was the sensation of a horse between my legs. Just as I had always known my name was Erico's, which, I had been told, meant the one who is always there, in some ancient tongue of humanity which was no longer used. So I had always known how to pull an arrow on a bowstring and let fly at a target as I galloped past on horseback. But I, Linda, she was not familiar to me. Though there was some part of me that seemed able to travel through time and space and assume many incarnations, they were plainly not the same incarnations. I was not living an episode of my life over again. I had merely become the same person again, going through a different series of actions, or so it seemed. I had a sense of free will within those terms. I did not feel that my fate was preordained, but perhaps it was. Perhaps I am too much of an optimist. Perhaps I am, after all, a fool, and Katon was wrong in his assessment of me. The eternal fool, and that's that's a um, a little bit of foreshadowing. The fact that we know from the Eternal Champion books, having read them and and you know, to a large degree over the years and you know thirty odd years, that the Eternal Champion had there's an element of um, the people who surround the Eternal Champion could be argued to fulfil the same role like the like the companions like Jerry O'Connell, like. Um, Moonglum, later companions like Weldrake, who was a companion to Elric later on, there's always a suggested element that they also are reincarnations of mm. the same people who become companions to the champion. And there's something about, if Ierlinda was the one, he would have some frisson of memory about her. So that's the first kind of foreshadowing that, you know, Ierlinda at the moment is the hot topic for uh, for Elric for Ericos and his uh, his his newly found libido mm. but uh, a bit of foreshadowing there that maybe not maybe that's not the case because he has no memory of her but nevertheless he uh, he digs Islander although he does muse on her attitudes and relationships with her father and perhaps that she's a bit disappointed in her dad and he he, he muses perhaps that he's some kind of replacement for her dad mm. which you know yeah, probably probably a bit tough to process um, you don't want to be your girlfriend's surrogate father replacement. I think we need another um, old-fashioned. Let's just pause for a second. Okay, we're back with a fresh old-fashioned. Cheers, babe. Oh. Is that a bit cheeky? Cheers. You do make a cracking old-fashioned burp. It's got to be said. Thank you. Mm. Mm. Where were we? So, yeah. Um, there's there's a bit, bit, bit of a question mark on whether Ierlinda is the one. But he, he still digs her. 
Um, and when not training or planning strategies, they spend time together in the garden of the palace with a thousand windows. There's something of a parallel there between the last episode of The Jewel in the School we did, where Hawkmoon spends time wandering around the gardens of Castle Brass and the, uh, the Rose Gardens of Castle Brass with Count Brass's daughter, Yzelda. Very different, that situation, though, because at that point, Hawkmoon is essentially traumatised and he's got PTSD and he's got the Black Jewel embedded in his forehead and Yzelda manages to tease out his humanity. Whereas in this, Erikos has got a massive horn for Iolinda. They're, they're very much... There's a lack of chemistry essentially, I think is the deal, because despite the fact him finding out that shagging before marriage isn't really a big deal in this world, which you would think with Erico's and the John Dirk power fantasy would be like, woohoo, brilliant. Actually, they don't get jiggy. And there does seem to be a a lack of of chemistry there where Erico's is attracted to her because she's fit and she's a princess. She feels to, to some extent that she loves... She must be obsessed with him because he's a god, but they seem to be the only things that fuel the relationship. There's a real lack of connection. So at this point, they haven't actually managed to get jiggy with each other. But it was not the social conventions that hampered my ambition, it was Eilinda herself. And that is one thing that no amount of freedom or licence or permissiveness or what the old fogies, whatever the old fogies call it, can cope with. That is the odd assumption found in the 20th century... I wonder if you who read this will know what those stupid, two stupid words mean. That if the laws that man makes concerning morality, particularly sexual morality, are done away with, then one huge orgy will begin. It forgets that people are, generally speaking, only attracted to a few other people and only fall in love with one or two in their whole lives. And there may be many other reasons why they may not be able to make love even if their love is confirmed. Either John Dacre or Erico's, have led a very, very sheltered life in that respect. Because, uh, you know, we've got friends who basically are... Oh, well, I've had friends over the years who are basically shag monsters. I, I, I don't think this necessarily applies to Chopper, for example, who, when we went to Amsterdam for a day, managed to sleep with three prostitutes, and we had to hammer on the brothel window to get him out so we didn't miss our bus back to the, uh, to the ferry. If only Chopper... Subscribed to Erico's uh, uh, law of morality, sexual morality there. But what you just read sounds very clinical. Yeah. Rather than any love behind it. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It says, uh, where Eilinda was concerned, I hesitated because, as I've said, I did not wish to be merely a substitute for her father. And she hesitated because she needed to be absolutely sure she could trust me. John Dacre would have called this a neurotic attitude. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps it was, but on the other hand, was it neurotic for a relatively normal girl to feel a bit peculiar about someone she had only lately seen materialise from thin air? Good point. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Fair play. What's Erico's all about? Yeah. But enough of all this. All I should say is that, although we were both deeply in love at this point, we did not sleep together. We did not even discuss the matter, though it was often on the tip of my tongue. So basically the both um, a bit uptight and frigid, perhaps. Sounds that way. Mm, who knows? So maybe there's that little bit of uh, John Dacre still still lurking around in Erico's in that he, he really, really overthinks the fact they haven't got into the sack yet. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, after this, his lust wanes, but just prior to departure, he gets a snog in the gardens, gets his first snog, and she digs it. And he tells her that they'll marry when he returns. He just says it. 
as you said. She goes, yeah, you know what, we're going we're gonna to get married. And she digs that too and gives him a ring, a token of her love. A token of my love, she said. An acceptance of your proposal. A charm, perhaps, to bring you luck in your battles. Something to remind you of me when you are tempted by those unhuman Eldrin beauties. Mm. She smiled when she made this last retort. Uh, perhaps another little bit of foreshadowing there. Ooh. Yeah. Um, so they awkwardly tell each other of their love. I love you. Hi, Linda, etc. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so awkward. I love you, Ilinda. I paused and added. But I'm a crude sort of lover, am I not? I have no token to give you. I feel embarrassed and a bit inadequate. Spoken like an awkward teenage nerd. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that when I was 14 or 15, or maybe even 17, or frankly, even 35... Um, that's exactly that's exactly as awkward as I would have been. Was I that awkward when we got together, babe, fifteen years ago? 16. Probably. Oh, sorry, sixteen. I probably was. So that she she then makes him swear <laughs> a thousand times that he'll return to her, which is a bit needy. Bit obsessive. Yeah, a bit needy. Bit needy. Yeah, swear it. She said, "I'll swear it." There's no question. Swear it again. I'll swear it a thousand times if once is not enough. I swear it. I swear that I will return to you, Islander. My love. My delight. <laughs> Don't get any better, does it? I, it's just really, really, really hard to buy into it. Yeah. You so, just don't feel that chemistry whatsoever. No. And um, I, I do suspect he maybe had his fingers crossed behind his back when he was saying all this. <laughs> anyway, so King Ragnos summons them at this point to interrupt the uh, the lovers' revelry. And on to chapter 7, the armour of Erikos. So... They try to let Ragnos in on their jubbly plans, <laughs> but he, he's got other stuff on his mind, so you know they don't really get the opportunity. Slaves bring Erikos' armour, and to be fair, it's it's pretty swish. I picked up the breastplate and ran my hand over it. Unlike the armour worn by the Imperial Guard, this was smooth, without any kind of raised embellishment. The shoulder pieces were grooved, fanning high and away from the head, to channel a blow of sword, axe or lance from the wearer. The helmet, breastplates, greaves and the rest were all grooved in the same manner. The metal was light, but very strong like that of the sword. But the black lacquer shone. It shone brightly, almost blindingly. In its simplicity, the armour was beautiful. As beautiful as only really fine craftsmanship can be. Its sole ornament was a thick plume of scarlet horsehair which sprang from the crest of the helmet and cascaded down the smooth sides. I touched the armour with the reverence one has for fine art. In this case, it was fine art designed to protect my life, and my reverence was, if anything, that much greater. So, he's, to be fair, it's a pretty swish suit of armour, and he's he's really digging it. And at, at this point, um, Eilinda tries to uh, bring up the betrothal again, but but it doesn't happen. Ragnos is, is too high on uh, on the impending sailing. So before Islander leaves, Erikos and Islander have a quick cuddle and a weep. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see him weeping. No, no, you know, what are they weeping about? She's very needy. She's super needy and uh, obviously she's breaking down his defences as well and he's having a weep as well. Although that's, that's a terribly sexist thing. Maybe he's the weeper and she's, and she's just being reduced to it by him. Who knows? Well, then the, uh, the, the presence of John Dacre pops up again before being repressed again, as if your intellectual geek mate in the pub was, was your id 
and you have to keep sending him outside for a rally while you try and score with some lapping chick. Anyway, Eric Hose goes to bed <laughs> and uh, and dreams. Oh, he's dream of many people in many places he's and dream times. dream of many people, that's right. I saw towers and marshes and lakes and armies. Oh, in fact, read along with me because it'll be interesting to see if yours is different. I saw towers and marshes and lakes and armies and lances that shot flames and metallic flying machines whose wings flapped like those of gigantic birds. I saw monstrously large flamingos, strange mask-like helmets resembling the face of beasts. So that's... that's uh, Totally the same. That's Hawkman. All right. I saw dragons, huge reptiles with fiery venom flapping across dark, moody skies. I saw a beautiful city tumbling in flames. I saw unhuman creatures that I knew to be gods. I saw a woman whom I could not name, a small red-headed man who seemed to be my friend. A sword, a great black sword, more powerful than the one I now owned. A sword that perhaps, oddly, was myself. So, what are we talking there? What's well, Elric, isn't it? Oh, yes. And and the beautiful city tumbling in flames is, is the dreaming city of Maria. The woman he could not name, the small red-headed man, red-headed man. Is that Cora? Uh, no, the red-headed man is Moonglum. Oh, god! Gotcha. companion, Moonglum. Yeah. And the great black sword, more powerful than the one I now owned, the I can't Stormbringer. Stormbringer. Yeah. I saw a world of ice across which strange great ships with billowing sails ran and black beasts like whales propelled themselves over endless plateau of white. That's the uh, probably the ice schooner from memory. I saw a world... Or was it a universe that had no horizon and was filled with a rich jeweled mosaic atmosphere which changed all the time and from which people and objects emerged only to disappear again? It was somewhere beyond the earth. I was sure. Yes, I was aboard a spaceship, but a ship that travelled through no universe conceived by man. Mm. I'm not sure that what that's referring to, but that could well be one of his sci-fi novels from the 60s. I love it, though. Yeah. And then there are others. Uh, a desert through which he stumbles and weeps. Ooh, that could be anything. A jungle, bizarre buildings, a weapon in his hand that was not a sword and was not a gun, but was more powerful than either. Riding strange beasts, etc., etc., etc. He has these endless... What seems to be an endless dream, and it ends... There was no peace, there was only strife. Yeah, but the names rode in my school. Too many names, too many... Mm. I love that. Love it. So in his dreams, he's he's remembering numerous existences um, that he's had over the uh, over eternity, effectively. Mm. Great so, dream. Yeah. Probably not for him. But so chapter eight continues. Um, chapter eight, the sailing, and he wakes up craving an Upman's Corona Major cigar. It's not one I know. Mm. He says John John Dacre wasn't a cigar guy, so who could that have been? It says the name Jeremiah came to mind. That's a reference probably either to Jerry Cornelius or maybe even Jerry Cornell. Various different versions of, of Jerry Cornelius. We have to go program. back some time and look. Yeah. So he gets up, dressed and armoured, and he heads off to the Great Hall where King Ragnos gives a massively jingoistic speech to the gathered marshals and knights of the kingdom. And once again, this is all distinctly swivel-eyed and gammony. As Ragnos whips up fervour as he declares that all Eldrin men, women and children will be killed and their lands burned. And he entreats Erikos to be humanity's scythe. Erikos gets quite into it and declares, I will destroy the Eldrin. 
and the thousands of knights joined the mantra. We so swear, we roared. Hatred is basically searing from the king's eyes at this point. His voice is trembling. And he says, go now, paladins of mankind. Go, destroy the Eldrin offal. Clean our planet of the Eldrin filth. So it's all very Daily Mail. Um, but they need to be chill out and be a bit more... I'm getting on it. I'm getting on it. We shall vanquish the Eldrin. Yeah. Well, you're, getting, you're getting into this. Getting into it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's all a bit too Daily Mail for me. They need to chill out and be a bit more Sunday sport about it all. Um, back in the early 90s, me and me and my mate Robbo, we, we trained as mental health nurses at Delapole Hospital. And in that first year was the first Gulf War. So it was 1991. The first Gulf War took place while we were training. And because we were young, naive idiots, we uh, we were you know constantly. It was it was that time at which, you know, the, the war was being televised. It was the first ever super televised twenty four hour news war, and we were absolutely fascinated by it for all the wrong reasons. But at the time, the Sunday Sport, and and I've got I've got to say the Sunday Sport is is a, is a in many ways a terrible rag, but in other words, it's absolutely bloody hilarious. And at the time, they had a front page, and it was a picture of Saddam Hussein with like a. A sniper rifle target over his face, and the, and the headline was "Bump off, Mad Sad, and win a Metro." <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, so I I took that off and um, I sellotaped it to my uh, my work binder with all my work in it, and and I had that on my um, work binder for um, for my student nurse training for three years. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, happy days, Robbo, if you're listening. Yeah, so um, the Thousands of Knights are, are super, super into this, and, and Erikos is super into it, and they head through the packed streets, and Erikos is full of it, his chest is pumped out, and even better, on arrival, at the flagship, Eilinder is waiting in his cabin for a snog. And his, his cabin is, is, once again, ostentatious, to say the least, but he digs that there are actually paintings of him on the walls. <laughs> so he's, he's got his funky suite... In the uh, in the the flagship to lead humanity's warriors in a, a a war of genocide, and the walls are adorned with pictures and friezes of him. Island is still a bit freaked out about his casual approach to the question of his immortality, and uh, after she leaves, Erikos heads up top to wave at the well-wishers with with Ragnos, and Katon is his usual surly self. King Ragnos waved his hand. Would you have some wine, Lord Erikos? I declined. You spoke well in the hall, King Ragnos, I said. You fired us with a fine bloodlust. Caton sniffed. Let's hope it lasts until we get to the enemy, he said. We have some raw soldiers sailing on this expedition. Half our warriors have never fought before, and half of those are boys. There are even women in some detachments, I've heard. You seem pessimistic, Lord Caton, I said. He grunted. It is well to be. This finer and grander is right for cheering up the civilians, but it's best you don't believe it yourself. You should know Erikos. You should know what real war is all about. Pain, fear, death. There's nothing else to it. You forget, I said. My memory of my own past is clouded. Caton sniffed and gobbled down his wine. He replaced the cup with a clatter and left. I'll see to the casting off. So Ragnos and, and Erikos discuss Caton. And Ragnos actually points out now that Caton did actually have his eye on Eyalinda. Which further explains... Caton's extreme grumpiness and uh, and dislike of Erikos. But eventually, the fleet sets sails. It doesn't set sails, it sets sail. But he'd the also, fleet sets sail. He'd also taken over his power. Yeah. 
Not and also obviously he had feelings for Ireland. Yeah, so he's, he's took his power, he's took his position, and he's uh, scarring with a chick who... I was going to say Kate fair maiden. Yeah, oh, yeah, fair maiden, yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, so, Needy. yeah, you, you can kind of understand Kaitan's position, really. Well, needy mm. fair maiden. Chapter 9, which is entitled At Nunos. Erikos is dreaming again. Oh, these blind and bloody wars. Really, Bishop, you fail to understand that human affairs are resolved in terms of action. Brittle arguments, pointless causes, cynicism gains disguised as pragmatism. Would you not rest, my son? I cannot rest, father, while the Paynim horde is already at the banks of the Danube. Peace. Will they be content with peace? Perhaps. They won't be satisfied with Vietnam. They won't be content until the whole of Asia is theirs, and after that the world. We're not beasts. We must act as beasts. They act as beasts. But if we tried, we have tried, have we? Fire must be fought with fire. Is there no other way? There is no other way. The children, there is no other way. A gun, a sword, a bomb, a bow, a vibra pistol, a flame lance, an axe, a club. There is no other way. So he's puzzling over these dreams and these thoughts, even doubting the identity of John Dacre now, as John Dacre sinks further and further into his subconscious. And he heads up top to, serve, to have some banter with uh, with Kertard. And Kertard. I don't think he heads up top to have banter. Well, he, he, he heads up top and has banter. Yeah, he has that, some mad banter with Kertard. Yeah. And, uh, and again, Kertard needles him and Erikos comes off second best. And he leaves the deck thinking, in other circumstances, I would slay that man. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, again, evidence that Erikos is now fully... To the fore, because you know he's he's tempted to cut someone down for um, for basically besting him uh, in in some verbal jousting. John Dick has fully left the building now. So, but you think you think he's given him a lot of leeway with his jibes. Although to be fair, Caton did say it's how he gets through it. Yeah, is by rankling him. Yeah, yeah, he does actually admit that, doesn't he? Yeah. That, um, this this is his way of dealing with it. And, uh, and Erikos kind of has to suck that up. Yeah. So next day they arrive at Nunos to a roaring welcome. And Erikos observes some differences between him and the capital as he's escorted through the masses. Prince Bladak, overlord of Nunos, greeted us with due ceremony and read out a speech that could not be heard for the shouting. And then we were escorted through the streets towards the quarters we were to use while making our brief stay in the city. The dual towers were not disappointing. Though I noticed that the houses built close to the ground made a great contrast, many of them were a little, little better than hovels. It was quite plain where the money came from to encrust the towers with rubies, pearls and emeralds. I had not noticed this great disparity between the rich and poor in Necronel. Either I had been too impressed by the newness of the sights, or the royal city took pains to disguise any area of poverty, if indeed they existed. And there were ragged people here too, to go with the hovels although they cheered as loudly as the rest, if not louder. Perhaps they blamed the Eldrin for their misery. Once again, raising the spectre of, of, of the other across the sea, being the cause of your poverty and your misery and all of your problems. And also you've got, they talked about many poor people, jewels for the rich, but the jewels on the gates were not cleaned. Yeah. So although they had... They weren't looking after it. Yeah, yeah. So there's this massive disparity between rich and poor. 
and the and the temptation of the poor people to blame the folks over the sea for all of their problems does again make me think is Nunos basically Grimsby? But Sarah's. then I thought no, because Grimsby not at any stage has ever had dual gates. So you can't really even argue that it was Grimsby. Uh, you may be a Cato, but I'm so <laughs> not going to buy it. <laughs> Sorry, babe. I'm not anti-Grimsby. You know I love it. Yeah, only so, in a film. The Overlord of Nunos, a sallow-featured man of about 45 with a long drooping moustache, pale watery eyes and gestures of an irritable but fastidious vulture. <laughs> yeah, you kind of don't take to him and the description doesn't help, actually. Yeah. It emerged, uh, and I was not surprised that he would not be joining us in our expedition, but would remain behind to protect the city, or his own, or his own gold, most likely. Yeah, not his city at all. Yeah. So, Ragnos says, yeah, we just need a hot meal and a simple one. No banquets. And Bloodag looks relieved. And it says, the meal was simple, though not particularly well prepared. <laughs> we ate it with Prince Bladak, his plump, stupid wife. <laughs> Princess Ayanante and their two scrawny children. Privately, I was amused at the contrast between the city seen from a distance and the appearance and way of life of its ruler. Bit harsh there. Plump, stupid wife. Yeah, well, we don't know what else transpired, but yeah, it's not a very nice description of her, is it? it it's not, and I, I, I do wonder at this point, when you read things like that, you think, there's a temptation to think that the author is just crass. But actually, I think that's quite deliberate. I think that's quite deliberate. I think Erikos is continuing his journey from John Dacre, the city intellectual, to the pompous bully that he's become in order to carry out this mission of genocide. Mm. So he's, he's completed his journey to where exactly what he needs to be to be the biggest murderous arsehole that these people require him to be. Well, would you go crazy if you believed that you had just two days ago been some other man? It may be helping him. It's just to totally become tunnel vision. Yeah. I am Ericos. Yeah. I have to be who I am at this time. So they meet a number of commanders at this point, and we get some top-notch Moorcock shorthand characterisation. Among the commanders were several famous heroes of the two continents. Count Roldero a barely aristocrat whose armour was as workmanlike and free from decoration as my own. Also, there was Prince Malihar and his brother, Duke Ezak, both of whom had been through many campaigns. El Shinura of Caracal, one of the farthest provinces and one of the most barbaric. Shinura wore his hair long in three plaits that hung down his back. His pale features were gone and crisscrossed with scars. He spoke seldom and usually to ask specific questions. The variety of the faces in the costumes surprised me at first. At least, I thought ironically, humanity was united on this world, which was more than could be said of the world of John Dacre had left. But perhaps they were only united for the moment, to defeat the common enemy. After that, I thought, their unity might well suffer a setback. El Shinura, for example, did not seem too happy about taking orders from King Ragnos, who he probably considered soft. I hope that I could keep so disparate a group of officers together in the battles that were to follow. So after some strategising, Ragnos and Erikos return to the flagship, which, for the first time, Erikos now notices is called Ayolinda. And he remains troubled by his dreams. There was still a mood of slight depression hanging over me from my strange half-dreams of the previous night, but it was beginning to disperse as my excitement grew. It was still a month sailing to Mernadin, 
but already I was beginning to relish the chance of action. At least action would help me forget the other problems. I was reminded of something that Pierre told Andre in War and Peace. Something about all men finding their own ways of forgetting the fact of death. Some womanised, some gambled, some drank, and some, paradoxically, made war. Well, it was not the fact of death that obsessed me. Indeed, it seemed that it was the fact of eternal existence that was preying on my mind, an eternal life involving eternal warfare. And at that point, the flagship Eilinda sets sail. Mm -hmm. And that is where we shall draw to a close the Eternal Champion, part one. Yeah, I, I, I remember reading that they had a month sail to... Is it Mernadin? Mernadin. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, a That's month, a long sail. Yeah. With K-Torn. Well, a month at sea with K-Torn. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they have a blast. <laughs> and you know what? We've not read the next part yet, but I reckon everything works out. Do you? I do, yeah. I reckon they become the best of friends. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. They were enjoyable first nine chapters. Yeah. So that's... Um, it's got to be 15 years ago you read all of those um, Mocock books when we first got together. It, yeah, it was quite early on, yeah. Yeah. One thing, you read all that fantasy because we got together and I was like, oh, Mocock, Mocock, Mocock. So you read all those lovely Millennium editions. Between now and then, you've not really read much fantasy. You're yeah. not really a fantasy person, are you? Generally, when it comes to books. I like murder. Yeah. I'm a big murder mystery. Yeah. But I like to read. I will try anything. Hmm. And when I remember when you gave me them the first time, I was instantly hooked. And I just took it all in and asked for more. Yeah. That book that you're reading, I read. Yeah. Yeah, so this That's is the, uh, the Millennium Edition with the rather beautiful cover. Yes. Um, the artist's name slips I, my mind. I remember mind reading right it in your flat. Yeah. In my, my dingy bachelor pad. Yeah, it really was. It was, pretty, it was pretty dingy. But, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the style and his description of the characters. And yeah, yeah. I got really into it. Yeah. Well, it will not be long before we get into the next chunk. And we'll sit down again, possibly with more old fashions, or maybe a mint julep. And... Uh, Uncover part two. That sounds like a good plan to me. Yeah, so enjoyed that. Cheers, babe. Cheers. And uh, see you next time. Goodbye. Well, actually, I'll see you in two seconds after I turn this off. <laughs> but everybody else. <laughs> yeah, to everybody else, say bye bye. Bye. As always, thanks to Phil for sticking with me through this and for being my Mojo Booster-in-Chief. It's been a difficult couple of months for everybody, as we're all aware, and uh, Phil did her homework for this show long before I did. In fact, without Phil, I don't think I would have any Mojo. And thanks as ever to Team Ruins, Tash, Loz and Hussein for keeping in touch throughout this hiatus and affirming their desire to continue on our journey through Mocock's multiverse. And for those listeners that have stuck with us through the past six, seven months, thank you and welcome back. As you know, we've had an eight or nine week gap since our last show, largely down to world events. And you'd think a lockdown would have spurred us on to do more, but the situation has had something of a nullifying effect on, on a lot of things. And for me, that's included podcasting. Not so, not so much because I couldn't do it, but more because I like to do it in person. 
Supping, eating and gabbing are integral parts of the experience for me. It's a social thing. I've explored the remote recording angle and I have the capability, but I think it may take something away. But I'm going to give it a go anyhow. Not least because that elusive show with the mystery guest that I've referred to previously has to be remote anyway due to geography. I also have a show in mind with the host of a particularly popular podcast that also we've mentioned on the show previously, and if there's going to be an exceptional delay in his being able to meet up in a pub in the northwest of England to chew the fat over some of Mocock's tasty musings on genre, then that will have to be a remote gig too, so watch this space. Thanks as ever to patrons Fred, Norman, Matt, Tom and David, and in particular, thanks and apologies for, as is de rigueur on this show, mispronouncing patron Malpertwee's handle as Malpertius for three months. So sorry for that. Double thanks to you not only for your support, but also for not calling me out on Twitter for my lack of manners. I have to say, though, I'm still not sure I've got it right. And finally, heartfelt thanks to new patron Jim. It's nice to know that in spite of our slowdown, the show is finding new listeners still. Jim runs a small press publisher called, suitably, The Dreaming City and he's currently working on a guide to Elric collectibles, so be sure to check him out at dreamingcitybooks.com. Right, I hear the song of the swords as transition approaches. So, take care, stay safe, and I'll see you again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.